This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Scaling an engineering organization is challenging enough when you're co-located and when your whole team is developers. What happens when you also introduce data science and 24-7 SRE? That's three entirely different types of work. Now, distribute those workers around the world and imagine the complexity. Ledge sits down with Alex Newman, serial founder, engineer, and management thinker about how he and his co-founders at Intuition Machines think about and solve these problems. The keyword evolution. This episode is chock full of great value-driven techniques like blame-free process, accountability and autonomy and ownership. You're not going to want to miss out. All right, Alex, thanks for joining us. Why don't you give a quick intro yourself and, and the company? Well, uh, I'm Alex Newman. I uh, run the, the technical team here at Intuition Machines HCAPTCHA, and uh, I have a background in distributed systems and running uh, dev teams. And at uh, HCAPTCHA and IM, we are focused on providing uh, machine learning services to the world, so democratizing access to machine learning. Fantastic. Really exciting. So you and I off mic, we're talking about the ways in which you know, you've had to innovate worldwide, you know, sort of team management around different types of product delivery, sub product delivery, uh, you know, different teams, different places, you know, so I just wondered if you maybe dive into that, because I know that, you know, a lot of our clients and a lot of our listeners are in the same position that, you know, just trying to make sense of delivering product in different ways across different groups of people. Yeah, it's great. Um, so uh, the way I think about our team division is threefold. So as you pointed out, we do have a remote team, about half of our team is located here in California, most of the management, and the other half of the team is distributed across the world, um, uh, Finland, Ohio, Texas, Florida. Um, and uh, so, th- so that does present some type of challenge. Uh, additionally, we also operate uh, kind of three types of technical teams. We do, uh, we operate 24-7 systems, so that means we have a operations team. SRE group. Um, we write a lot of code, so we have a developer group. We also do machine learning, so we have um, kind of staff scientists and, and research projects going in uh, all the time. Um, and uh, to accommodate um, you know, these remote schedules and these very team tasks, we've had to be um, pretty disciplined about um, how we manage projects. Uh, obviously, when you're working in, with the same office with someone, you can work in very uh, tight uh, iteration loops. Um, but um, what we rely on since we have so much remote is um, we we infuse a lot of trust uh, on both sides of the um, the development platform. So that's, um, you know, we put a lot of trust in developers and hopefully they put a lot of trust in their management to the point of actually pushing for vulnerability. Um, we provide a huge amount of autonomy. Um, we lean a lot on process to kind of maximize the amount of autonomy we we give to the dev teams. And then uh, finally, we really focus on ownership. I think the term that people use now is extreme ownership um, uh, by the teams of the problems they're working on. Um, and this this is infused across all of the management uh, and uh, the engineering team. So these are kind of high-level values. So it could probably be difficult for your, your listeners to know exactly how we apply them. So hopefully we can get to um, some of those examples. But in the meantime, the other thing I'd like to point out is, is there are these not just 
you know, these values, these remote teams, there's also these different types of teams. So the way you think about running uh, an operations team uh, versus a dev team is actually kind of interesting, an interesting place to start. So, um, you know, obviously we want accountability uh, for people's actions. It's really important for the ownership and autonomy to work. Um, but when you're uh, operating an operations team, um, you have to be very careful about how, how and where blame is, is applied. Um, there's been a lot of research on kind of what blame-free operations works like. Um, and um, we, we follow those types of values uh, for our rotating operations staff. But on the dev team side, uh, what we do, and this, this kind of goes back to that ownership thing, is we really try to push the accountability at a team level, um, making people realize that the minimal unit of, of people working on things is, is two types of, uh, or two people, uh, not individuals. Uh, so that, that way there's at least a group responsible for the successes and failures of those actions. Um, and so this is a little bit different, you know, so, uh, you know, on the dev side, there's kind of this notion of, um, uh, you know, blameless, uh, we just handle, or sorry, on operations, it's blameless, we handle it through process. On the dev side, we push towards team ownership. And then finally, on the management side, you know, we try to be very upfront when we see, you know, four, five, six types failures that led to the, the larger failure. You know, that's a sign that really the management needs to take ownership of these types of issues, even though people on the dev team or operations team might feel as though that they are the ones who take responsibility. And, and so that, that's kind of, um, you know, not only how we apply our values, but how we tactically apply our values to the right unit of, of people to maximize the effectiveness of each individual team. Um, and I'm happy to provide uh, specific, more specific examples for all of them, but I think that's, you know, at a high level how we kind of think about um, responsibility and allocation of work, and it kind of trickles down to everything that we do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, I would call that highly evolved, you know, so maybe maybe a, a couple of minutes about, you know, okay, you got here from being, you know, ultimately a couple of founders and and having to think about scale and, and building out you know, business, right? There, there are mandates that are necessary to deliver for customers and then engineers and, and operators, et cetera, you know, in teams need to, to get to that point. So, you know, what's the, the evolutionary picture and path of doing that? How do you even know that you need it? There must've been, you know, symptoms and, and results and uh, trial and error. You know, what did that look like? Yeah, evolution is the good is the right word to use. Um, so my co-founder and I have founded a, a series of companies, and I I like to say that I made every mistake uh, along the way before I came to this strategy. Uh, so mostly as a result of failing over and over and over again uh, is where we got here. Um, you know, a lot of it, uh, a, a lot of the the motivations and and the ways we organize things have been kind of inspired by, by larger movements that are going along. But, you know, if you look at um, where we were, you know, we roughly um, have increased almost an order of magnitude. You know, I've worked at companies that have doubled in a year. Um, we've gone from, you know, a couple of people to over a dozen people now. Um, and uh, even that is, is growing at a rate that it's quite difficult, um, and the only re the, one of the reasons why we pushed this um, this particular model while we were growing was mostly as a result of allowing those teams to move independently while they were being trained, and also for us as an organization to 
move on multiple fronts at one time. Um, and another way of saying this is, uh, what's the alternative to the thing, right? So the alternative to autonomy is trying to micromanage or, or manage your workers, which to some extent can you know help with deadlines. Actually, can also help with kind of learning and, and bringing people up to, to speed faster. But it means that now your executives or your higher level people are spending all that time providing that management rather than focusing on delivering to customers. So um, a lot of this stuff isn't so much like, wow, aren't we smart? Um, let's adopt these things to do it better. It's, you know, you can actually think of it as, wow, we're moving so quickly. We, you know, customers are really want to pay us money uh, to deliver these products. You know, how do we move in all of these directions? Um, and, and the answer to that was really focusing on making sure that the right skin in the game was at the right level. So, you know, now when executives are dealing with customers um, and they say, you know, you know, the customer says, I need this feature in three or four days. I should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, it's actually the executive who's negotiating the contract who's responsible for implementing that feature if it is kind of a triage action and doesn't fit in an individual sprint. So that's kind of how we get, um, you know, the appropriate levels of ownership. So if you're going to agree to do something outside of the traditional process, uh, then you're going to be the one who's on the hook to doing it. And so the question is, well, why do we do it that way? It's because we didn't used to do it that way, and it caused a huge amount of problems. And then we realized, oh, what's causing this problem? Well, the, the reason why this problem is caused is the person who is agreeing to do something for a customer doesn't have any skin in the game. They're not the ones coding it. There's no, there's, and even though they're coders and they could code it, their natural impulse is to please the customer and not to figure out, okay, you know, how are we actually going to get this done? Do we have the resources? What are all, all the individual steps? And actually, it was that realization that, you know, figuring out who is responsible for what, figuring out how to get that responsibility in the right place. Okay, now that we've got the responsibility in the right place, can we just give those re the, the person implementing that responsibility enough power to get it done on their own? And that's where the values came from. So, you know, like, you know, we evolved the same way you evolve in nature, right? Like nature beats you over the head and you either – uh, succeed at changing or you die. And uh, so far we've stayed alive just by being willing to adapt to, to these things that we're learning from our outside environment. Sure. Now I'd imagine that you don't have resources just sitting around waiting for the next emergent customer issue to, to be sold upon, you know, right. so how do you deal with, um, let's presume that, that most of the time for any team member is, is pre-allocated. Yeah, right. And, and they're already doing something of value for some customer. How do you figure out how to pull from that, that bench and essentially reallocate that time to what is now dubbed as the, the next most important thing? You can imagine quickly where that becomes like, oh, well, we have six number one priorities. You know, which one is really number one? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so part of it is we, we did um, build a triage team, which is the only team that works outside of a sprint schedule. Um, and the triage team is currently my co-founder and I. So the people who negotiate the contracts are the people who will triage emergencies. Um, that is different than the on-call staff that might get woken if some bit of infrastructure gets uh something like that breaks. Um, and, and the triage team does have the capability to kind of deputize people who are working on Sprint, bring them off Sprint. And there's a whole process for how they go off Sprint, how they announce it in the stand-up channel, you know, how we track how much time is being sprint off, spent off Sprint. Uh, but overall, um, it, the way that we um, 
kind of prioritize these last minute things is, is, is once again really pushing back the person who's agreeing to do these last minute things, the, the knowledge that there's a 75% chance they're going to be coding it. So uh, I should also mention um, we're a little bit of a weird organization because we're already a, above a dozen people and everyone in my company codes. Uh, I don't think this is normal for most organizations. Most organizations by now would have you know, product managers and project managers, it's something that we might, you know, certainly get to. Um, but we are in a unique situation where all of our teams, anyone on our team could help triage customer issues. So what we've done is we said, okay, the person who's going to be agreeing to do with these triage issues, they're actually going to be the people working on it. So that way we won't agree to anything crazy. If something does come up that's existential to the business, they can pull th people off of high priority tasks. Um, we actually have a developer on call uh, program, which is the developer, one developer every sprint allocates some amount of their time um, towards technical debt. And they're usually the first person we will pull off of, uh, off their sprint. Um, but normally people are coding um, independent of the emergencies going on. And um, what ends up happening is um, customer development uh, gets slowed down. Um, we're lucky enough to be in a company that's being overwhelmed by customer interest. Uh, I think that if someone, you know, was earlier in in the process and still working on initial product market fit, that trade-off would probably not be the right one to make. They should probably focus on the business. But in a world where you have um, more customer and customer opportunities than you do have engineering capacity, the, the trade-off is to basically limit that inflow of growth and to do the right thing for the customers that you have by, by triaging them. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry if that was a very long, complicated answer to a simple question, uh, but I, I hope it gave some value. All, uh, all answers to all questions tend to be complicated when there's uh, actually a good answer. So, <laughs> you know, thanks. I mean, the reality is that you know it depends, and yeah, and, and this particular model, I imagine, was was what we talked about is not the model before. Yeah, may not be the model tomorrow. How and what heuristics and in what ways do you monitor? I mean, how do you know when you need to, you know, go back to the drawing board on, on when you're 16 people or, or 20 people, you know, how will you know and what metrics do you watch in order to get to that point? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so, uh, and, and it definitely, um, it definitely won't be the way that we're going forever. We're already trying to build up our triage team and, and help our executives on the biz uh, side. Um, I think, you know, abstractly, when you think about these types of issues of um, allocation of resources and, and building teams and all this stuff, um, you know, we have a lot of good techniques that we can adapt from the, uh, the Scrum community or the, the Sprint community, the Agile community, kind of doing these things of where things fell over and where they went down. I think, in general, it's pretty normal for us to want to um, bring people kind of over from the developer operations staff um, over to uh, either triage activities. Um, and in addition, we also try to push uh, developers uh, more and more to deal directly uh, with customers to, to kind of keep the executives on block. But I think, you know, at, at a high level, you know, the way you get there is just, you know, going back to what I was saying before, this, this trust thing. Um, I can't help but think that if the developers and the management have the right relationship, your developers will kind of 
give you things that smell like you should be doing this, right? So if your developers are complaining that you're agreeing to things that are unreasonable um, and that they don't feel like their, their sprint schedule is reasonable, like the right thing to do is to push that uh, ownership to the person who's gonna have to do the work. So if they're complaining that um, you're agreeing to features that are unreasonable, bring that developer into the call with the customer, make sure that you know they're in agreement of what's going on. Um, just kind of eliminating all the, the telephone games that you see in an organization, um, I think is, is a big deal. Um, we can kind of get uh, to some of the, the detailed ways that we try to push the transparency out of people. Um, but I think that, um, the you know, there's this ancient phrase, which is those the gods wish to destroy, they first make arrogant. And I think that what you see with most organizations is is not that they don't know that they have to do these things or they might they might even know that they're they might even know that it's a possibility. Um, the the real issue with organizations is recognizing internally where they're weak and being honest about that, writing it down, um, measuring failure in a unemotional way. If you can do those types of things um, and just kind of stay connected to the psychological. Uh, literature stay connected to other leaders, these actual solutions will just kind of pop out. I have to admit, you know, now that I'm saying out loud, I don't think any of these ideas were mine. Um, I've been a big fan of kind of the ideas that we see coming out of the military now, entering the um, civilian programming sector about how they run teams, how leadership kind of flows from them. And I think that, um, you know, embracing that community and other communities uh, that have well-trained leaders or leadership teams um, will suggest techniques to try. And so then the question is, how do you know if they're succeeding or failing? And I think that goes back to the, the values of the organization. Um, you know, if you're in growth mode, then all that matters is growth and you should measure that as success and failure. If you're in, you know, honing and, and getting better in expansion mode, then come up with metrics that match with there. And then, you know, on a quarterly or even monthly basis, um, the management should do an analysis. Okay, what are our high-level goals and how do we communicate them most effectively to the people? Um, I think, you know, I, I know that a lot of this stuff sounds uh, like high-level stuff, but it's actually quite actionable, right? When I talk about um, making sure that the responsibility or, or that people have the right skin in the game is, is properly allocated, um, well, how do you know when you know the, the, when you're doing it right? How do you know when you're doing it wrong? It actually is is quite simple. Um, if 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 the wrong people um, don't have ownership, you know, if the wrong people have, don't have ownership of the problem, it won't get done effectively. If the right people have ownership of the problem, it'll get done quickly and it'll get done effectively without much oversight. If you find yourself having to put a lot of oversight to get things done wrong, that's a sign that you have not allocated appropriate skin in the game to the individual solving problems. And I, you know, I, I hate to harp on this stuff over and over again, but this comes from being in engineering environments where this isn't the case. Um, you know, I've worked at some pretty impressive large companies, worked at companies that have grown from, you know, five people to um, multi-billion dollar companies. And I can tell you that, the departments, teams, and groups that were successful were the ones that really felt like they had full ownership, full autonomy, and a real vision of how that product was going to be used. And so that so we're really stealing those good ideas from the high performance organizations we're having and trying to integrate them back into our enterprise. 
what's your um what's your higher fire philosophy you know um not everybody makes the cut right uh, <laughs> how do you i mean how do you deal with that you know that, because adding people into a highly functioning organization you know it carries a greater and greater deal of of sort of risk of uh mishire yeah i think i think i don't know if we we talked about the 70 people i rejected before i filled a particular role actually i think it's like 60 people or something like that um yeah um so uh we um do a lot of trust in the interviewing process we lean pretty heavily on um uh, short conversations and and take home homework and um we you know the real goal for us is to build as accurate of a work simulator that we can so basically to build the environment that they would be working with and see how they work in that environment. Um, so um, I don't want to say that I give people like actual work that we have to get done. Um, I'd be a liar to say that in previous jobs, I haven't used that mechanism to get good ideas of how to solve problems, um, but they are as close to real as we can. And when I say as close to real, I mean as close to real to the problems that we are facing today as we can. Um, part of that is just because as your organization changes, your needs change as well. Um, uh, I personally also um, really like teams of people who are more careful than me. And that's kind of my, uh, part of the bar that I have for the homework problem as I say, is this person going to uh, make me uh, more conscientious by working with them. And um, the reason for that is is not because I'm very uh, kind of like careless or anything. It's when you think about assembling a team, what you're doing is you're assembling a team of, of varied personalities. In our case, we hire people from all over the world and we have to um, not only get a, a, diver a very diverse team here in the United States, but across the world. So being um, understanding those cultural differences, understanding those personality differences, understanding how all those will flow together is uh, part of our interviewing process. Um, however, on the, on the code side, um, we've been pushing more and more to make that process as impersonal as possible. Uh, so the actual code review portion, I think we're moving to even eliminating names from the reviewer uh, who are actually reviewing the code. And so this kind of gives us like three axes that we're making decisions from. Um, the executives kind of say, okay, how does this personality or coder type fit in with the team of coders? The um, advocate or, uh, or interviewer who is kind of doing that initial uh, once through review, is really saying, you know, are they uh, going to raise the, the carefulness um, that we want on this team? Because carefulness is something that gets harder and harder as you grow. And then finally with the, um, with the homework assignment side, we really do um, kind of want to have a standard evaluation mechanism without resending the same homework problem over and over again that obviously would have uh, obvious deficiencies. And so we're really pushing for that to be kind of transparent. Like if this was code in our code base, would we feel comfortable merging it right then and there? Um, it's kind of interesting. We've had some people who were like, hey, do we like this code? Do we want to merge it? 
uh, or sorry, do we like this code? We want to hire them. And they were like, yeah, I think so. They're pretty good. I don't know. And then we're like, well, would we merge it into our code base as is? And people were like, oh, of course not. And we say, well, we, we wrote the homework assignment as if they were supposed to write production worthy code. This isn't production worthy code. So, you know, let's push back. And, and, you know, so that mechanism has made things pretty um, easy and clear cut. Um, from a hiring um, strategy perspective, we do like to have uh, teams rather than individuals. This can make uh, onlining new regions a little bit tricky, um, but you know, usually good people have friends that they want to bring along with them, and that's been our experience as well. And so kind of this trifecta, I feel like there's a lot of trifectas in our talk, uh, but this trifecta of... Um, you know, are are they, you know, do they have this personality trait or the superpower that we, we, we need right now? You know, the executives think they fit well in the team. And finally, this kind of unbiased uh, homework uh, problem um, we, we found to have a, a great, um, great impact and results for hiring a remote team. Uh, one caveat being, and this is advice to the viewer, is uh, in the past, we probably um, asked homework assignments that were a little bit more open ended a little bit easier to get done in a minimal way. And uh, my advice is actually um, time bound the, uh, in the interview um, and make sure that uh, you ask something harder than, you know, give them enough so that there's no way they'll be able to complete all of it. Um, it's much more painful to have someone not get all the way through, but do a good job on it and still hiring them. That's way less painful than someone getting all the way through the assignment and you're not sure if you want to hire them. So definitely uh, lean on the side of um, harder problem, but be respectful to your interviewer by time bounding it. So that way they don't, you know, blow, you know, 10 days trying to pass an interview. Fantastic. So uh, let's see, I'll finish with one, one question. Uh, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you would have done different at the beginning? Yeah, well, um, It'd be nice to have this code base now. Um, you know, I, I think um, the biggest mistake that um, I've made um, in general is when we were first hiring, we really focused on getting people who had had successful startup exits, uh, very well credentialed, you know, top schools. Um, a lot of them had had very large exits before. And, and, and just really getting people who I knew personally who, who were kind of in that top tier. Um, and, uh, the, and knowing what I know now, I would have focused a lot more early on about um, diversity. I think diversity is one of the most powerful um, things you can hire for. People who think different from each other, have different experiences, complement each other a lot better than, than people who, who kind of all code the same. Um, it's not to say that, you know, their experience, those, those, those good schools and, and, and good jobs aren't, aren't valuable, but ultimately, if you want um, a team to perform, it's very important that you, you focus on building the right team and not hiring the right individuals. Uh, that was a painful lesson for us to learn. Uh, and I think that it's something that people are starting to realize more and more in our industry is how important um, all sorts of diversity is. I don't want to sound like a, a PC billboard. Uh, I think maybe my definition of diversity might be more broad than other people's. Um, but, but really pushing for these um, happy, diverse teams. Um, I think if we would have done that earlier, um, we would have been, been in an even uh, better space than we are today.
Fantastic. Well, Alex, congrats on the success so far. No doubt more down the road. Uh, thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you. I hope it was fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.